7.6 billion. Now that's a big number. That's how many people there are on Earth. In the U.S. alone, estimates say that out of 328 million, there are nearly 246 million lost souls, men, women, boys, and girls that don't know Jesus. Those numbers seem big, but what if we were to focus on the number one? The Bible tells us that heaven rejoices every time one person comes to know Jesus. What if we were to focus on the daily conversations, those everyday meaningful interactions for Christ that can truly make an eternal difference in someone's life? We can reach our nation with the gospel. We can reach the millions. We can reach our friends and family and neighbors by starting with one. Who's your one? got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 5. We're going to be looking at a very familiar story here in a moment, but we're going to be looking at it in the midst of or in the lens of this series that we started last week called Who's Your One? I wanted to start today with a story about a group, and maybe you've heard of this group or maybe you haven't. Um, it, it was a group of, of, of Guys that got together and formed a, a group where they would get together every now and then, and they called themselves the old time fishermen. And they were around a place that had lots of lakes and rivers and lots of good areas to go fish. In fact, the whole area was surrounded with that, and from all of the reports out there, it was a good fishing place. And so week after week and month after month and year after year, those that were in this group met in meetings and talked about their decision to fish, the abundance of fish, how they liked to fish, and how it would be a good idea to go fishing. And year after year, after carefully defining what the term fishing meant, they defending fishing as an occupation and declaring that fishing is always the primary task of this group of men that were the old-time fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They created slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners. They built large, beautiful buildings. Their group grew and grew. They called them fishing headquarters and said that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. Only one thing they didn't do, they didn't fish. Now, in addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish, and the board hired staffs and appointed committees and held meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing and decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish over the years. Courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. There were those who had doctorates in physiology, but the physiologists didn't fish. They only taught how to fish. Year after year, after tedious training, many graduated and were giving fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters which were filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish, but like the fishermen back home, they never fished. They worked in all kinds of occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so that the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors and how loving and kind they were was enough. 
Now it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the waters and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen who never fished. Imagine how hurt someone were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were not really fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet something in them said it sounded correct. Are we really fishermen if year after year we never fish? More succinctly, can I call myself a fisherman if fishing's not what I do? Now, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Y'all were here last week. Do you remember what we said? That Jesus said, follow me and I will do what make you fishers of men. And yet statistics show us that a large portion of the church in America is no longer fishing. And so last week we started this series of messages about the idea of for you and for me, not concentrating on the billions, not concentrating on the millions, not concentrating on our state, not concentrating on our world, but concentrating on this question. Who is one person in your life that you know that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who is one person in your life that you know that needs to be saved? Who's the one person in your life Family, friend, neighbor, co-worker, barista, checkout person. Who's the one person in your life that you need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with? If you were here last week, I'll ask you to begin to pray about that God would give you who that one person is. Now, some of you are like, oh, yeah, that's right. He told me that last week. And this is the first time you thought about it since Sunday at 915 last week. That's okay. God's a God of second chances or seventh chances since you've had seven days to think about it and you didn't, but we won't go into that, right? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to look at biblical understandings of how and what we ought to be doing. You see, it's easy to get caught up in the idea of missions, of evangelism, of fishing without actually being in the role of doing missions, of doing evangelism. It's kind of like sports. There are lots of people that like to talk about, that like to watch, that like to spectate sports. And sometimes even they will use a pronoun to describe the team for which they root after a loss or a win. Well, we won that one. You didn't have anything to do with it. Sitting at home on your TV, watching it, drinking your Dr. Pepper, eating a sandwich didn't have a whole lot of impact on that game. But we want it, right? That's the way we feel. Sometimes that's the way we treat missions. That's the way we treat evangelism. That's the way we treat sharing our faith. Man, we are really involved. Are we? Are you? And so we're going to look at a very familiar story today to ask the question, what does it look like to be involved in the act of missions? This is not a story that's going to blow you away because you haven't heard it before. In fact, most of you have heard it used. I've preached on it three or four times probably in the last 12 years at this church. But I want us again to be reminded of the measures and the extent to which we ought to be going for the one in our lives. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17, says this. 
On one of those days, while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. Now, that's a big deal because that means Jesus is getting known around the area. And they came all the way from Jerusalem. Now, for us, that's not geographically a long way. It would not take us long to drive from where Jesus was in Capernaum to Jerusalem. But for them, that's a long way. And there had to be intent. And then it gives us this little tidbit at the end. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. Now, there's a couple of things that he wants us to know about this. Is first of all, we are about to encounter what are several controversial stories between Jesus, controversial actions between Jesus and the Pharisees. Luke is laying the groundwork for the reason that Jesus will eventually be crucified by this group of religious leaders. He's giving us the conflict that is there, but he wants us to know from the outset that the power that he had to heal was not from something other than God. It was the Lord's power. The Lord is the one who had blessed him. The Lord is the one who empowered him. It was the Lord who was doing this in his life, not some other explanation. And then we get to the meat of this particular story. Just then, some men came carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and they lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Now, here's the picture that you have. You have to understand that there's more than likely Jesus is not in a large home. In fact, he is in a a home that would be the size of most of our living room and kitchens. That's where they lived. Maybe not even that big. When I was, you know, I was uh, at, a, at a birthday party the other day for, my, um, for Ava, for my youngest, and for a girl that's in the uh, same grade as her, and her, she's actually in Susan's class, Susan's second grade teacher at Madison Creek, and we were talking and having conversations and found out that the dad of the girl and I were at Southwestern Seminary at the same time. First time I'd ever met him, we're having a conversation, and we got to talking about our first places at the seminary. Now, let me tell you, I am thankful for the Southern Baptist Convention, for the money that is given to cooperative program that helps with tuition for the Southern Baptist seminaries. But I know that none of that scholarship money goes to accommodations for seminary students. We had a two-bedroom apartment, duplex apartment, that was 600 square feet. I could put my feet on the coffee table and turn the station on the television. It's tight. These houses were not that big. So when it says that they were crowded all around, yes, it would have been a big crowd, but we're not talking thousands of people, okay? Maybe there were thousands, but it wouldn't have required that. It would have been a courtyard, people gathering around, people all around, but he had some friends, and the friends had to get him in. Now, most of them would have had would have had ladders on the outside of the house because they used the roof not just as a roof. Like none of us here probably in the last week have thought, let me go get up on my roof. They would use the roof as a place to get to be upstairs. They would eat up there sometimes. They would sit up there. They would lounge up there. In the night, especially as it started to cool down, they would go there because it might be stuffy. Many of them had animals that were living in the house with them in a small Four or five hundred square foot area. Animals do not smell good. I know some of you love your fur babies. 
but animals have a way of not smelling good, right? They didn't take their dogs on walks. They didn't have dogs. First of all, we're talking about larger animals, some of them having work animals there. They don't have pets. They didn't have that going around. In fact, remember in the New Testament, dogs are considered a bad thing, right? So they didn't have that. And so they would go up on the roof to, to escape the heat and escape the smell. So they would have a ladder on the outside. It was a thatch roof. And so these guys can't seem to get around there. So they go up the ladder. Now, mind you, go up the ladder doing what? Carrying a guy on a mat. So it's not just, hey, let's climb that ladder. they got to figure out how to get up to the roof. They get up on the ladder. They get up there. They get there. They pull the roof away. And then they lower the man down there. Now, my assumption is they had some sort of system to lower the man down. I assume they didn't just drop him, right? But regardless of what it is, if you're Jesus, something's going on in the roof from all assumptions we have, from all understandings we have. He just kept on going, and the man gets lowered through the roof, right? It goes on to say this. Seeing whose faith? Whose faith? Their faith, he said. Friend, your sins are forgiven now that word there there is not here's what i will tell you it is not specific that it's just the four friends it could be the four friends and the man on the mat he could have been there encouraging them to do that i'm not sure but we know that it's not his faith we know it's not singular it is collective seeing their faith he said friends your sins are forgiven then the scribes and the pharisees began to think to themselves who is this man who speaks blasphemies who can forgive sins but God alone? Let me stop there for a second. Go back just for a second. See, there we are. There's some, there's some people out there trying to convince America, Christians, even people that claim to be thinking in a Christian way, that Jesus never claimed to be who we have made him to be. He never claimed to be God. He just was a good man. He was a good teacher. You hear that narrative, right? C.S. Lewis is famous for saying that when you look at all that Jesus says, all that Jesus does, all that Jesus aspires to be, to declare that he did not say he was God is unreasonable. This is just but one example. Who do they say can say he forgives sins? They say only God. And yet you know the answer to this. Does Jesus back down from what he said? No. No. Next verse says this. But perceiving their thoughts. By the way, you realize that often when Jesus is with the Pharisees, he's playing chess while they're playing checkers. You got that right? Like he knew how they would react in their mind when he said what he said. This is a game where he is eight moves ahead and they're just figuring it out as they go. But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. First time, by the way, he's called Son of Man in the book of Luke, which is an important term in that book. He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately, he got up before them picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Amen? 
Wouldn't you? Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God. Now, here's what I think is incredible here. Y'all know what the word everyone means? Everyone. Who was there questioning him? Pharisees. You know what they could not do? They could not deny what had just happened in their midst. And they were filled with awe and said, We have seen incredible things today. You know what I think is remarkable about this? And we're going to break down this in just a moment to kind of talk through these friends. What I think is remarkable about this passage is that all of this, this we have seen incredible things, minds of Pharisees, the teachers of the law that were there, they is all describing what they have seen, being filled with awe, being filled with wonder. And it all happened because some guys decided to bring their friend to Jesus. I see a few things in this passage I think are important for us to think about as we think about our one. And the first thing is this. These men had a mission. These men had a mission. And mission drives us, doesn't it? I mean, it drives us as individuals. It drives us as our culture. It's obvious when you watch the... For instance, the Democratic primaries that are going on right now, there's not really a Republican primary, although there may be one soon. There's not a Republican one, but if you watch that, it's obviously that each of those candidates has a mission and trying to differentiate themselves from the other ones, whether you believe them or not. It's easy to identify their mission, what they think will get them to be president of the United States. Some of you are like all-star champions of this kind of stuff. You have a life mission. You've got it written down somewhere. You've got a family mission, and you've got somebody that's gone out and put it on some wood slab and painted it real nice, and you hang it over in the room, and everybody walks in and sees that your family hugs and this family loves. And like you've got mission everywhere. But mission is that part of our lives that drives us. And when we get off course from that, All of a sudden, we're not doing what we are called to do. It's easy to get off course a little bit and to think about how do we get back to what God's called us to do. Major companies have missions. I don't know if you know this, if you're aware of this, but a company like Southwest Airlines' mission is to become the world's most loved, most flown, and most profitable airline. So they want to have more people fly them than anybody else at lower prices, being loved, but being profitable. So everything they do is driven by that decision. Instagram, social media, their mission is to capture and share the world's moments. I don't know if you know this or not, but every time you're taking that selfie, or well, maybe, maybe not some of you, but the people that you see or know take selfies, right? Like you see that and you put it up on Instagram that what you're doing is you're capturing and sharing a moment and that's their goal. Google is the place that's called to organize the world's information and make it universally acceptable and accessible and useful. That's their stated mission. Everything they do is in line with that. We have a mission, right? As a church, we have a mission statement. It's out there on the wall. We exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And as a church, we need to regularly ask ourselves, what is our mission and are we aligning what we have to that mission? Are we aligning who we are to that mission? Are we aligning what we have been given as resources to that mission? 
Jesus had a mission. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, is what he tells us later in this book of Luke. So the question is, what were these men's mission? What were these guys' mission? And this is what we know. We don't know the background of this friendship. We don't know if this guy was paralyzed as you know they were with him or around him from the moment he had been paralyzed, where they got to know him after he was paralyzed, where they've been with him since birth being paralyzed. What it, we don't know a lot of information. We just know that there are four friends that are bringing this guy and they're bringing him to Jesus. Now, we don't even know if it's four friends, but we kind of, you got to be at least four, we think, because it's got to take that many stretcher. It could be more. All we know is this. We don't know their background. We don't know their history. We don't know what started their friendship. We don't know how long they've been friends. What we know is these guys, however many they were, whatever they were in the process of doing, had a mission to find a way to bring hope and joy to their friend and to get him healed. And it drove them to this moment. What drives you? What is the mission of your life? What things spiritually has God put on your heart that you long to see come to happen in your lifetime? Does your mission have anything to do with kingdom dreams? Are you thinking about things of the kingdom? Or when you nail down your mission, you would say, man, it's a lot of stuff here and now. It's not a lot of stuff eternally or for the kingdom. If you were to write down today what you want to see accomplished in your life for the time that God has given you remaining on this earth, what would you write down? What's your mission? What's your purpose? What's your reason for being here? You all know we talked about this a few weeks ago. We lost three ladies that have been a major part of our church that were all in their 90s. One lady in particular, actually all three of them at some point in discussions I'd had with them, but one in particular, Miss Nina Mitchell, I would go to her house and she would say to me, Pastor, I don't have a clue why God still got me here. But he's got me here for some reason. And I just want you to pray that God will help me find it. What's your reason for being? Whether you've got 60 years left, whether you've got 10 years left, whether you've got a hundred years left, that's not a lot of us, by the way. Whether you've got 30, if you've got a week or you've got a decade, what's your reason for existing? You know, Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the world and yet lose his soul? Jesus said that it's ridiculous to build barns and build storage all in the barns because tomorrow your life will be taken from you. What do you have of eternal value? Eternal value. That is the mission of your life. These men had a mission and it was to get their friend to see Jesus, but they had more than a mission. They had eager expectation. They actually believed Jesus could heal this man. They said, if we can get this guy to Jesus any way we can, Jesus is going to heal him. That the only hope he has is in this itinerant preacher who has come on the scene that has God's power to heal. We've got to do everything we can to get him to Jesus, knowing that if we do, Jesus will heal him. Jesus will do something about this. They were eager with anticipation. Now I want you to think for a moment about that. 
The only assurance they had at that time, they hadn't seen any television newscast about it. They didn't read about it on the Internet. The only way they had knew it was through word of mouth. Now, let me just ask you a quick question, all right? Have you ever found in your life that sometimes word of mouth isn't the most reliable way to hear stories? Anybody here ever experienced that in their life? Where you get a story that's been passed down for years or for weeks or for days or for moments, and when you get back to the origin of the story, somehow the story changed before it got to you. Anybody here ever experienced that? Yeah, three of us. That's good to know. All right. So they had this expectation, but it came. We don't have any idea that they saw anybody, that they had seen Jesus. They just heard word of mouth. Now, I want you to think about this from us. We live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, and we have centuries of evidence that Jesus heals, Jesus makes people whole, Jesus saves. And our thoughts ought to be, whoever that one is in our lives, whatever I need to do to get them to a place where they encounter Jesus, and then I leave it up to Jesus to do the healing, to do the saving, but he's willing. I think about even Old Testament people who, and we've talked about this before, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is Jonathan and his armor bearer. When he's getting ready to go, his dad is sitting under a shade tree, Saul, trying to figure out what God's will is. And Jonathan's like, God told us to take on the Philistines. Let's go. So he takes him and his armor bearer, and it says he starts to go uphill to challenge them. And on the way, he says, we're going to go up here, and perhaps God will do something. The most confident, perhaps, in history. Maybe God will take care of some things. And in our lives, I just wonder how many times we have stepped out on faith thinking maybe God will do something. But my favorite attitude about that is not Jonathan and his armor bearer. My favorite attitude about that is Rack, Shack, and Benny. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who were told to kneel and they said, we serve a God that will save us from the furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow. Now, we use that to stand up against whatever, but I wonder how many times God's asking us to take a bold step of faith when it comes to sharing our faith or talking to someone that needs Christ, and we shy back for some reason thinking that there might be embarrassment or there might be rejection or they're not going to hear it or they're not going to understand it or we're going to mess it up, that we are not willing to even trust God with our own failures. Third thing we see about these men, it didn't all go smoothly. They encountered an obstacle. I'm afraid that many of us, if we were there that day, would have taken the crowd of people that were there as a sign from God that, well, he's closed that door. Literally. Throw up the white flag and say, there's no way in. The open door has been shut. God's got to find another way. Now imagine if the people in the New Testament had figured that out. If Paul had done that, half the New Testament would have never been written. If a door seemed to be closed, he decided not to try to break it down or go some other way, it would have been closed. Sometimes we give up too easily on things God has called us to do because we use the sentimental, well, God has shut the door. Well, maybe God shut the door so you'd tear open the roof. That's good right there. I just want you to know that, all right? Y'all can write that down and put it on Instagram. 
You see, they got there and there was an obstacle to what they were doing, but they did not take that as a sign that God still didn't want to do something in their friend's life. But let me tell you something. You know who will throw obstacles in your way when you're attempting to do something for the Lord, especially when you're trying to bring somebody to faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know who will throw an obstacle in your way every time? It is the enemy of your soul. So do not take the devil's ploys as God closing a window. What would it look like in your life for you to dig a hole in a roof? And here's the thing that we see at the end of this. These men were on a mission. They came with eager expectation. They didn't let obstacles get in their way. And when they got there, they got more than they bargained for. I've often said this. I think it'd be interesting to see their faces the moment that Jesus said to the guy in front of him, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know what it was like, and this is all speculation, all right? My guess is they've lowered him down through it. They're probably, they may still be holding the ropes and peering through the hole. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? I don't know. Maybe they lowered him all the way to the ground. Maybe they jumped down like Navy SEAL commandos and got all in the room. I don't know. But I would have loved to have seen their faces when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Because that wasn't their mission. Because that wasn't their expectation. I I would guess there may have even been a flash of disappointment across their face. That's it? That's all? And yet Jesus gives them what they came for and then lets them know there's so much more. He heals the man physically, but he also heals him spiritually. Let me ask you a question. What are some ways in your life that God has done more than you ever expected? In Ephesians, Paul writes that he's praying and he says, you are the God who is able to do more than we could even ask or imagine. The original language, that is a made-up word, Paul says, that piles like super great, unbelievable, more than on top of each other to say it exceeds all expectations. What has God done in your life? And I'm not asking that in a skeptical way because the truth is if you are a child of God, you have had God do things that you cannot explain or understand in your life. What is that? And how has that impacted who you are? And are you willing to to share that with those that come to faith or need to come to faith in Christ. I'm afraid that many of our churches and many of us that come in on Sunday mornings and sit and listen and enjoy what's happening, I'm afraid many of us have fallen into the trap of the old-time fishermen's club. We talk about fishing, we talk about who is our one, we talk about evangelism, we talk about sharing our faith, we say it's a good thing, we give money for it, we pick it, we take trips for it, we talk to people about it, we send out missionaries, and I'm proud of the cooperative program and the missionaries that we send out, but, none, but we haven't fished in a long time. I'm just wondering, what would it take for you to fish? This week, I told you last week, each week I'm going to give you something, and so this week... Here's what I want you to pray. Last week, you should have been praying, who's my one? God, who is it that you want me to do? Some of you know that right away. Some of you are still working through that. Maybe you need to begin to develop a relationship will be that. Here's the second thing I want you to do, to pray every day. I want you to, once you have that one in your head, if you don't have the one yet, you keep praying for that. But once you have that one person in your head, that one person in your mind that you're thinking through, then every day I want you to pray, God, show me opportunities 
and give me the courage to take them, to take that relationship deeper. What I mean by that is, give me opportunities to speak into this person's life, to help them to see who I am, and to take that relationship deeper. Would you pray that this week? Let's pray together.